Whew, okay. You're going to need thermals, snowshoes, more thermals, a good vacuum flask, and probably more thermals. Welcome to the Backpacker's Guide to Prehistory. Welcome to the Backpacker's Guide to Prehistory, the podcast that provides top travel tips for time travellers. I'm your tour guide, David Mountain. In this, the last episode of the season, we're venturing to the Pleistocene, lasting from 2.6 million years ago to just 11,700 years ago. The Pleistocene is by far the most recent time period we've yet explored on this podcast. Given that it only ended a few thousand years ago, you might think that this time in our planet's history isn't much different from the present day, and you'd be fantastically wrong. The Pleistocene is so near and yet so far, there are habitats, animals, and conditions quite unlike those of today. And this is because, during the Pleistocene, the Earth and its life forms are all defined by one major event, the Ice Ages. Yes, this is the time of woolly mammoths and saber-toothed cats. The Pleistocene is up there with the age of dinosaurs when it comes to prehistoric star power, and I can promise you that it does not disappoint. Having said that, the Pleistocene isn't the easiest period for the backpacker to visit. This is, after all, a time of violent climatic swings, and some pretty big and fearsome animals. So, to ensure that I make it back without frostbite, and with my bowels still safely emboweled, we're going to need the help of two Pleistocene experts. Dr. Julie Meachin, a paleontologist at Des Moines University. Hello, thanks for having me. And Diana Fusco, a paleontologist at Flinders University. Hi, how are you going? But before you even set foot in the Pleistocene, you need to make sure that you're prepared. There is a rule of thumb in time travel, which says that the further back in time you go, the more preparations you need to make. Now, that's still broadly true, but the Pleistocene happens to be one of those exceptions. This is a time period that shows no mercy for the complacent traveller. First things first, the Ice Ages are cold. Now, I don't wish to insult your intelligence here, but you'd be surprised at the number of people who still try to go backpacking across the Pleistocene dressed only in jeans and a t-shirt. Remember, during this time period, global temperatures were typically about 5 to 10 degrees Celsius lower than today. Now, that might not sound like a lot, but believe me, it can make for brutal and bitter conditions. If you're exploring the tundra, for example, annual temperatures average out to about zero degrees. And in winter, the mercury can drop as low as minus 57. So when it comes to clothes, essentially, bring lots of them. Thermals, hats, socks, extra underpants, everything. And remember, lots of thin layers are better than one big layer. Something else you need to prepare yourself for is the fact that quite a lot of the Earth's surface at this time is covered in ice sheets. At their largest, the Pleistocene ice sheets covered around 30% of the Earth's surface 
and could be over a kilometre thick. The biggest include the Laurentide ice sheets covering much of North America, the Barents ice sheets stretching from Ireland to Russia, and of course, the Antarctic ice sheets. But there are many others, including ice caps over the Alps, Andes and Himalayas. For those of you shivering just listening to this, don't worry, because it is possible to have a warm holiday in the Pleistocene. The ice ages are called ages for a reason. It wasn't one continuous deep freeze, but a series of long cold periods, known as glacials, separated by short, warm intervals, known as interglacials. Conditions could actually be quite balmy during these interglacials, with hippos wallowing in the River Thames and elephants and lions living throughout much of Europe. So if you're looking for a sunny holiday, make sure to set your time machine to one of these interglacials. Thankfully, all these preparations do pay off, because once you arrive in the Pleistocene, you're ready to see some of prehistory's most iconic creatures. Now, sometimes with prehistory, I try to be a discerning traveller, I try to go to obscure periods or look out for weird, unfamiliar animals, but with the Pleistocene, I'm going to be pretty shameless, because I want to see the heavyweights today. Starting with the woolly mammoth. So whereabouts in the Pleistocene world should I head to? if I want to see woolly mammoths in the wild. So if you want to see woolly mammoths, you're going to have to head north. So there were two kinds of mammoths, at least we know of two kinds of mammoths for sure in North America, the Columbian mammoth and the woolly mammoth. And there was a line right around, right around the glacier line actually where they both exist. So woolly mammoths are going to exist in places like Alaska, in places like the Yukon, so places where we're above the glacier line, but we don't have glaciation. That's definitely where we're going to find good woolly mammoths. Okay. Do you get them in Eurasia as well? Because I know there was the Bering Land Bridge during the Ice Age. Yes. So you do get them in Eurasia as well. So you will get them in places like Siberia. And I know they're actually pulling some woolly mammoth carcasses out of the permafrost up there. So they're, they're kind of complete. So definitely you will get mammoths in Eurasia, yes. Okay. And when I'm looking out for mammoths, what other animals might I find in these parts of the world? So there's a lot of animals that are familiar to animals that would be around today. So things like caribou are probably going to be around. And they're going to be in a more southerly range than we think about them today. So they would probably be in places like Britain. Of course, you're going to have the giant Irish elk, right, with the gigantic antlers there. And there's going to be bovids, so things like bison. Those are going to be in Eurasia and in North America. And then, of course, there's going to be the wonderful carnivores. So my favorite carnivores, of course, include the dogs and cats. So in Eurasia, you're mostly going to have an ice age form of the gray wolf. And then in North America, we're going to have some gray wolves up in the northern latitudes, but we're also going to have the infamous dire wolf too. In addition to those wonderful dogs, we are going to have some cats. So I know that there are cats like Homotherium, which is a saber-toothed cat with like a slightly smaller serrated teeth, which is different from the giant non-serrated teeth of Smilodon, which is in North America. So we will have those. And then, of course, we'll have things like bears. So cave bears will be in Eurasia, and we'll have the short-faced bear in North America mostly, but also some cave bears in the northern latitudes. It's amazing. So it's kind of like many of the animals are familiar to those you see today, but just a little bit extra. Yes. 
supersized. <laughs> yes, definitely. You mentioned the dire wolf there in North America. Now that name's always intrigued me. Is it because it would be quite dire if you bumped into one or is there another story there? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, so they were named back at the turn of the last century. And I think they were so named because they were giant. I mean, they were pretty big wolves. They were much bigger than the wolves that we have around today. So I think in that regard, yes, you know, Miriam or whoever it was that named them basically thought, yeah, I don't want to run into one of these. So that's that's my assumption. And of course, they did coexist with humans. So there were humans that did lay eyes on dire wolves. Of course, they are long gone as well as the dire wolves. But it probably would have been a formidable carnivore to run into, especially since we think that they hunted in groups. Absolutely. Let's stay in North America because you've mentioned Smilodon. It's another iconic animal of the Pleistocene. So if I want to catch a glimpse of one of these animals, although hopefully not too close, what parts of America should I be heading to? What habitats did this animal enjoy? So Smilodon is really all over North America. We don't have it absolutely everywhere, but I think that's just simply because the fossil record hasn't captured it in some places. However, you're not going to find it in very open habitats. So since Smilodon is likely an ambush predator, it's going to be found in places that have some sort of scrubby cover, at least. It might not be forests or, you know, heavily forested areas. You've got to have some sort of vegetation around in order for Smilodon to feel at home. So, for example, one of my field sites called Natural Trap Cave is a really open and arid landscape, and we don't find Smilodon there. But we do find it at places like Rancho La Brea, where we don't think we're having forests, but we're having more of a chaparral, more of a Mediterranean type of landscape with some oaks and some shrubs and things like that. Right. Okay. Obviously, the most distinctive feature of Smilodon is the saber teeth. Yes. But do we know why they had them, how they used them in real life? So we've had so many hypotheses about this, and there have been many, many, many paleontologists who have sort of thrown their hypotheses into the ring, so to speak. We do know that they do not use their canines the same way that living lions and tigers use their canines. So living lions and tigers are what we call conical tooth cats, and that's because of the shape of their canines. They're round in cross-section. And so what that means is they can experience force coming from any direction, and it's going to be about the same outcome, no matter what. And so what they do is they attack a prey animal. They use their hands to sort of manipulate themselves around the prey animal, to sort of position themselves correctly. And then they use a throat bite, usually a throat bite, to suffocate the animal. So they have to hold on for a long time because... It can take anywhere from, you know, seven to 15 minutes to suffocate a giant animal like a bison or wow. a zebra or whatever you want to think about when you think about modern lions and tigers killing prey. And so they really do experience a lot of forces on their jaw and on their teeth when they're suffocating this animal because the animal doesn't want to die, right? They are trying to get <laughs> away. So we know just from looking at the the shape profile of saber-toothed cat canines that they really couldn't handle any force in the mediolateral direction because they're very thin in that direction. So if they get force in that plane, their teeth are going to break. And while they did occasionally break their teeth, they actually broke them with less frequency than modern lions and tigers do. Oh, wow. So 
we know that their their teeth were not being subjected to those forces. So basically what that means is they couldn't have possibly strangulated their prey. They had to figure out a different way to do it. So there have been many hypotheses, like I said, and one of them is a belly bite, sort of eviscerating the guts of the animal. And we've kind of disproved that with sort of modern biomechanical reconstructions. So the most likely scenario and something that I've worked on with Smilodon is that they use their really powerful forelimbs to hold prey down and grapple with prey more so even than modern big cats do. And then they use their big long canines to basically do a quick throat bite. So basically biting through the tissues of the throat and then probably just uh, releasing and sort of letting the animal bleed out before they begin to eat. And so that's probably the most likely way that they killed their prey. It's also possible that they bit in and then pulled out, which would have really ripped the throat out of the prey animal. But I don't think we have a real answer on that yet of which way they absolutely did it, right? And it could be that they mixed it up. But that's likely how they killed prey, is with a slashing kind of throat bite. This is fascinating, but it is making me a little nervous about visiting Pleistocene North America. Do you think a Smilodon would have been interested in a scraggly human? Or if you left them alone, would they leave you alone, do you think? So that's a great question. And I think that humans still, even though we are pretty soft and unprotected, are still formidable enemies because we are in groups, right? And we do have weapons. So I think that Smilodon, of course, you know, probably would have taken advantage of anything that it could have gotten. If there was a a human carcass, I'm sure they would have eaten it. But I'm guessing we still weren't their preferred prey. I know there are some examples in Africa of big cats in the Pleistocene having killed children of, of different hominids, and maybe not Homo sapiens, maybe a different hominid. But I think that Smilodon probably did not prefer humans as its primary prey. Okay, that's good to know. So we've got direwolves, we've got Smilodon, a whole host of fantastic creatures in Pleistocene North America. Are there any other really impressive animals that I should keep an eye out for on my trip? Yeah, so one I actually forgot to mention, which also relatives of this animal existed in Eurasia as well, is the American lion. And cave lions existed in North America, so those were probably the most closely related lion to the American lion. And American lions are special because they're actually the largest cat that has ever lived. Modern lions, you know, of course, get to be about max, max weight, about 300 kilos. And that's for exceptionally large lions. So they don't generally get that big. It's usually between about 150 and 200 kilos is what the male lions weigh. And so if you do a quick and dirty estimate for those of you who would rather work in pounds, It's about 2.2 pounds per kilogram. So if you just multiply it all by two, which is the easy cheat way to do it, then, you know, modern big cats are about 400 pounds. Well, the estimates of the American lion's mass, the maximum size of the estimate of the American lion was about 450 kilos. So that's like a 900 pound cat. So that's like max, right? So most of them probably weren't that big. They were probably around 700 pounds. But still, that's a pretty darn big cat. And they also coexisted with humans. So lots of giant predators in the Pleistocene. Yeah, that is something that really is very noticeable that so many animals compared to today 
are really big. You've got these enormous lions in North America. You've got large bears, even large species of beaver that are much yes. bigger than anything around today. And of course, you've got mammoths, you've got woolly rhino, all these things. Do we know why so many animals in the Pleistocene were so much bigger than their relatives today? So that's a great question. So there is this rule in paleontology called Cope's Rule. And Cope's Rule basically says, you know, things get bigger through time. Well, that's sort of a cheat way to think about it. I mean, it's not, it doesn't explain anything, right? It doesn't give us an explanation. Paleontologists have been trying to figure out why this might be the case. And as it turns out, it's not true for all different organisms. Many organisms do get bigger through time, but many organisms do not. They stay the same size or some lineages even get smaller. One of the hypotheses is that it has something to do with the primary productivity and the level of oxygen on the planet, that there may have been definitely more biomass of plants. And if there was a greater biomass of plants, there's more energy to be had by animals. And so the planet could definitely sustain biomasses much bigger than we have today. So the animals right. were bigger. But the problem with that, too, and probably part of what led to the extinction of these animals is that if that biomass disappears, so if anything changes, that plant biomass is going to change. It may not completely disappear, but even if the composition of it changes, that's really going to affect all those animals. We're really not going to be able to support that much biomass. You referred to cave lions a minute ago. Yeah. And one of the most common causes of injury to backpackers, to tourists in the Pleistocene is when they go into caves for shelter. You think of the Ice Age, think of cavemen, cave women. It makes sense. But right. people often forget that animals have already had the same idea. So right. if I was in the Pleistocene and I went into a cave, other than cave lions, what animals might I bump into and how would it end? So I don't think any of it would end good. Um, I think that uh, the other animals you're likely to find in caves are bears. So there's lots of bears that live in caves. And bears, of course, as we know from modern day, generally don't want anything to do with people. They would rather stay away from you. But if you walked into their house, right, like if a bear walked into your house, you probably would, you know, try to get it out and you wouldn't be nice about it. I think bears would feel the same way about humans coming into their caves. Like, what are you doing here? You don't live here. This is my house. Get out. And bears have teeth and claws. So I think that would end up poorly for humans. And then the other group of animals that lived in caves, maybe sort of dwindling by the end of the Pleistocene, are hyenas. And there are hyenas in, in Eurasia. There's no hyenas in North America by the end of the Pleistocene. But sort of toward the beginning of the Pleistocene, there are. And I think the hyenas also would be a problem. I certainly would not want to go head to head with the hyena. I'd take the lion over the hyena, actually. Oh, wow. I think the hyenas probably are even nastier than the lions. And they can crunch your bones. And they probably would. That is true. <laughs> I think that, you know, just those three, bears, lions, and hyenas, would be enough to make me think twice about going into a cave. Another group of animals capable of ruining your holiday are insects. In northern latitudes, the brief ice age summer is plagued by midges, mosquitoes, and other biting insects. And unlike other time periods we've explored, the Pleistocene is already home to diseases like malaria that have specifically evolved for human hosts. So bring insect repellent. And if you run out, you can always try building a smoky fire or looking out for the Labrador tea plant, which is a common species throughout the ice age tundra of the Northern Hemisphere. 
grab a bunch of its leaves and rub them onto your skin for natural insect repellent. Now, from somewhere with lots of annoying little bugs, to somewhere with massive deadly bugs. Australia. If you're visiting the Pleistocene, I can't recommend a trip to the Antipodes enough, because its wildlife is utterly, utterly unique. Now, Diana, today Australia is known as a very hot and a very dry continent. Was that any different in the Pleistocene? So because of the glacial cycles, it's really going to depend on when you visit the Pleistocene. So if you come in during an interglacial, which are the warmer and wetter parts of the Pleistocene, then you're not going to find it that much different to what it's like today. But if you visit during a glacial, then you're going to find that it's a lot colder, drier and windier than now. So if you went back to the last glacial maximum, around about 22,000 years ago or so, it was around about 8 degrees colder in southeastern Australia. And a big difference between Pleistocene Australia and the Pleistocene Northern Hemisphere is during glacials, we just didn't have the same massive glaciers and ice sheets that you had in the Northern Hemisphere. So during the last glacial maximum, there were some glaciers forming on the Snowy Mountains, which are in southeastern Australia, and also in parts of Tasmania. But this was nothing compared to the extent of the glaciation of the Northern Hemisphere. And this is mostly just due to Australia being located in the mid-latitudes and also it's a relatively flat continent. So there's just not a lot in the way of high-altitude mountains for glaciers to seed on or to spread from. So in these glacial periods when it's colder, drier, windier, are the habitats similar to today, where you have forest on the east coast, desert in the centre and bush and scrub in between? Well, the Pleistocene is when you saw the formation of our modern habitats in Australia and also our modern faunal assemblages. So you'd see some definite similarities between now and then. So if you lifted, say, a typical southeastern open woodland out of the Pleistocene, and if you dropped it right down beside a typical southeastern open woodland of today, then you're not going to see a lot of difference. So you're going to see essentially the same plant species and animal species. This excludes, of course, the megafauna that we lost towards the end of the Pleistocene. But these habitats did shift and they did change in response to those cycling climatic conditions. So during the drier periods, you'll have seen an increase in expansion of the um, lower precipitation habitats, so the grasslands. And then there was a general opening up of the vegetation types. And then when conditions became wetter, the vegetation became more closed and you would have seen an increase in high precipitation habitats like the forests and the woodlands. And they would have been affected by other changes as well. So changing fire regimes when humans got here about 50 to 60,000 years ago. And they probably were also affected by the loss of our mega herbivores during the megafauna extinctions. This is because, of course, large herbivores are often ecosystem engineers, so not only are they seed dispersers, but they do a really good job of reducing the density of vegetation, so they're creating more mosaic habitats and reducing the potential for fire. So just to give you an example, if you had stood on the Nullarbor Plains in Western Australia, around about the middle of the Pleistocene, the environment there would be very different to today. So today it's famous for being dry, arid and almost completely treeless and the vegetation is mostly low-growing, fire-resistant chenopods. But in the middle Pleistocene, looking at fossils from the Nullarbor, you can see that there were a lot of wooded habitats, and they are inhabited by a whole load of typical woodland species that you're just not going to see out there today. 
So the Nullarbor had trees, possums, and it even had extinct tree-climbing kangaroos. Wow. Okay. So you've mentioned these tree-climbing kangaroos, you've mentioned megafauna, and this is what I'm really excited about when it comes to visiting Pleistocene Australia. What megafauna should I be looking out for when I'm backpacking across this continent during the Pleistocene? Well, look, it's really hard to just pick a couple because we lost more than 90% of our megafaunal species during the Pleistocene. And so we lost monotremes, we lost marsupials, we lost birds, and we lost reptiles. And there's just so many really cool animals that you could look out for. But one that would really stand out would have to be Diprotodon. And it's known as our iconic megafaunal species. It was a mega herbivore. It was around about two metres tall and it could weigh as much as two tonne. It's really hard to describe what this animal looked like because it's just such a unique looking animal. And there really is no modern analogue that I can call on for it. It does get described as looking a bit like a giant wombat, but it had like a much broader chest and a large fleshy nose. I don't necessarily think that giant wombat is a fair description of it either because we did actually have a giant wombat in the Pleistocene. All right. Yeah, we had an animal called um, Fasculonus gigas, and it was about 200 kilograms, so it was six times the size of a modern wombat. And it just had these really, really weird skull and teeth are just really strange. So the cranium's concave on the top, so it actually looks like someone's just put its foot in the middle of this animal's skull and pressed down. Oh, wow. Do we know why? No. No idea at the moment. <laughs> wow. Um, I definitely recommend looking up a picture of it, though. There's some good 3D models online. And its teeth are really weird, too. So it's got its upper incisors. They're really broad, and they're kind of like these big, long, curved scrapers. But then its lower incisors, they're narrow, and they're straight, and they're just completely mismatched to its uppers. But I reckon if you came across one in the wild, probably wouldn't want to get too close to it. With those teeth? Well, it's more that modern wombats have got a reputation for being really cranky and just you know, really temperamental when they're threatened, and they can give a really good bite too. So with Fasculonus, you've got 200 kilograms of bad wombatitude to deal with. <laughs> so another thing that you could look out for is just the diversity of the kangaroos that were around in the Pleistocene. So the kangaroos, what I'm really meaning is the macropodids, so the kangaroos, the wallabies, and their related kin. So today there's about 60 species of kangaroos, but in the Pleistocene we had a, an extra 40 or so species that just didn't survive the Pleistocene. This included multiple species of short-faced stenuring kangaroos, and we often call these guys buffhead kangaroos because of their short faces. And the biggest one of these was Procoptodon goliath, so it was huge and it was the most solidly built of all the stenurines, about two metres tall. And its arms were quite long compared to other kangaroos because it was using these arms to you know, reach out and grab hold of leaves and branches. There's also some evidence that Procoptodon might have been walking rather than hopping. So it would have you know, made for quite a sight to see this big, heavy kangaroo just striding out across the landscape. Yeah, and they were still walking on two legs in this yeah. motion. Yeah. Bizarre. I mean, there was a whole range of other animals, but those are some of the most interesting, I think, that you'd be looking out for. One animal in my guidebook that I'd like to know more about is the so-called marsupial lion. I was hoping you could describe this to me because it looks like nothing on Earth today. No, it's pretty unique, isn't it? 
So this guy was 150 kilograms, which makes it the largest ever marsupial carnivore known. And it actually came from a herbivorous lineage. So its closest related relatives are the koalas. Oh, wow. But it was just really well adapted to a carnivorous lifestyle. So it had these large stabby incisors. And they kind of took on the role of you know, piercing and holding that a canine tooth would do for, a, for other carnivores. Then they had these really long blade-like premolars that they'd use for slicing through meat and dismembering large animals. It's probably catching things you know, around the size of stenurine kangaroos. Wow. But it could also climb trees. So if you can imagine, it was actually able to ambush its prey. So it could just like climb up a tree hang out on a branch until a kangaroo came past, and then just drop on it from above. And as you said, this isn't exactly a delicately built animal, so that's going to be a very heavy blow if it lands on you. Yeah, but it was probably also able to tripod on its tail as well, so it would have been able to rear back on its haunches and use those big forelimbs to slash and grab at prey as well. So I'm putting this with giant wombats as animals to avoid. Well, there's a lot to avoid in Pleistocene <laughs> Australia. <laughs> and I think also make sure to look up if you're walking under trees. Absolutely. I mean, we often, we often scare tourists in Australia. You know, we talk about the drop bear, which is a mythical koala that, you know, leaps on people from trees and attacks them. But this was the real deal. This really was the drop bear. We're talking about megafauna here. And to state the obvious, megafauna are big animals, literally big animals. I'm curious about this because marsupials today, among other things, they give birth to very small, poorly developed young that kind of look like pink jelly beans with little arms. Yeah. And these then crawl into the pouch and develop further. Was this system still the case for giants like Diprotodon? Well, there's no reason to think that this wouldn't have been the same for our um, big extinct guys. So for Diprotodon, Thylacleo and some of the kangaroos, we have found fossils of juveniles alongside adult specimens. And these juvenile skeletons are located right in the pelvic region of the adults. So it's right about where you'd expect the pouch to be. So we know that these were pouch young. That's really amazing. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Pleistocene Australia wasn't just home to enormous mammals. And you've mentioned that there were birds and reptiles as well. And one that I'm really keen to see is Genionis. Tell me a bit about this animal. Okay, Genionis newtoni um, was a big flightless bird. When you first look at it, you might kind of think, oh, emu or ostrich or something like that. But it was actually a member of the Galloanceriformes, uh, which means that it was more closely related to things like ducks and geese and chickens. Of course, it was big. It was about two metres tall. And the adult males could get around about 250 kilograms in weight. If you compare it to the emu, just because the emu's, you know, a bird that everyone knows and understands, Genionis is probably only about 30 centimetres or so taller, but it weighed around about five times as much as the emu. But even for such a huge bird, it had these tiny little vestigial wings that probably just served no function whatsoever. Another giant of Pleistocene Australia, and maybe returning to the theme of animals to avoid, is Megalania. So what is this animal? And should I be afraid of it? Well, it was a huge monitor lizard. It was actually the largest terrestrial lizard ever known. But fossils of Megalania are pretty scarce, so we're not exactly sure how big it could get. But we think it could have gotten as big as about five metres in length. Wow. Its teeth, they were pretty sharp. 
and they were recurved, so they were curved backwards into the mouth and the edges of its teeth were serrated. So if you can picture that, once Megalania had gotten hold of something in its mouth, it would have been really hard for anything to escape it. And it's also related to the Komodo, the Komodo dragons. So like the Komodo, we think Megalania was probably venomous. So do you think you should be wary of a giant venomous goanna? (laughs) I think I'd be running for my life if I saw that. Yeah, I think I would too. So besides avoiding Megalania and these other grouchy, chunky animals in Pleistocene Australia, do you have any other safety tips, pieces of advice for someone who's going to backpack across this place? Well, I guess my number one tip would be what we've already alluded to, which is just look out for the wildlife. Now, Australia is famous for everything here wanting to kill you. And this was also the same in the Pleistocene, but we just had some really big animals that wanted to kill you as well. But as well as that, I'd really check the weather forecast too. Because, you know, if you turn up in the wrong time of the glacial, poorly dressed, then you're going to suffer. And on a slightly less foreboding note, what's your one top tip for the Pleistocene? If there's one thing to see or do in this period, what would you recommend? Well, I might be a little bit biased because the one I picked kind of sums up most of my research interests as well. But I reckon I'd probably chuck a saddle on a diprotodon and take a ride out to a place called Wellington, which is in the central east of Australia, and just do some wildlife watching. There's caves at Wellington, and they contain one of the, if not the most diverse Pleistocene mammal fossil assemblages known in Australia. And there's a lot of fossil birds, reptiles, and frogs as well. There's lots of megafauna known from the caves, so if you wanted to spot some of these megafauna, then this would be a great area to do so. It's also where Western science first encountered fossils of extinct megafauna, uh, well, marsupial megafauna, back in 1830. So you're also going to a place that's pretty much the birthplace of Australian paleontology. But yeah, keep away from the wildlife. That sounds amazing. And what about you, Julie? Hmm. You know, that is a great question. So I really love the site Rancho La Brea. I mean, there are so many different animals there. And and I do realize that Rancho La Brea is special because of its preservation, maybe not so much because of who was there. Because I think the animals that were there were everywhere. They just happened to be preserved at greater frequencies there. So I, I think Southern California actually would have been a wonderful place to visit in the Pleistocene because it wouldn't have been so cold, right? It would have been icy in places like Iowa. Like we would have been really cold here. I probably wouldn't have wanted to come to Iowa in the Pleistocene. So Southern California might have been a great place. I actually would like to visit Florida in the Pleistocene too, because we have there's going to be much more land area there. That's true. Right? So Florida actually was a lot bigger in the Pleistocene, and a lot of Florida paleontology is done underwater. I guess those would be the two places I would go, and I think I'm totally biased because that's really where I've done a lot of my work. But just to be able to see those places that I've studied and go there and see the animals there. And I imagine it would be very much like a modern day Serengeti where you go out on safari and you just look across a plain and you see like herds of different animals grazing. And of course, just like in the modern Serengeti, you're much more likely to see the herbivores than the carnivores. The carnivores are relatively elusive and I imagine that would be the same, but I really think that would be great. And if I could take a vehicle with me on my time machine, I absolutely would because, you know, just like a safari vehicle in Africa, you probably need one of those in the Pleistocene. Hmm. 
maybe something that ran on solar power so you wouldn't have to worry about gas that's, that's a good point <laughs> sadly that's all we've got time for so as the sun sets over Pleistocene Australia I'd like very much to thank my two guests Dr Julie Meachin and Diana Fusco for sharing their advice on backpacking in the Pleistocene if you've enjoyed what we've been talking about today then do check out their research there are links in the episode notes. And most of all, thank you to you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and indeed the whole first season. And if you have, please feel free to like, subscribe, share, and leave a positive review. This has been the last episode in the current season of the Backpacker's Guide to Prehistory. Funnily enough, time travel is a time-consuming business, so I'm going to be spending some time back in the Holocene for a short while. I can't say when exactly I'll be back with more top travel tips for time travellers, but rest assured, work on season 2 has already begun. When it comes to the history of our planet and its life forms, we've only just scratched the surface. There's so much more to explore. So, until next time, safe travels. <laughs>